to The Art of the Table, Beyond the Basics. Um, my name is Danielle Harper. I am here today with some very interesting people that we're going to sit here and we're going to answer some questions that you guys have about how to run an amazing game. So the way this panel is going to work is if you have a question to ask our panelists, you're going to come up to this microphone right up here. You're going to ask the question, and then our panelists are going to answer it for you. So anything that you have question-wise, um, you know, how to run a game, how to come up with a setting, what kind of game, you know, how to decide what game to run with your group. You have a group that maybe has um, social dynamics that you're interested in getting advice on. Anything having to do with running a game at a table, we're here to answer your questions. So let me go through. Um, I am a freelance writer and game designer for Onyx Path Publishing. I also write for other game companies, but most of them are indie, so <laughs> they're small, small fry. Uh, as you guys probably know, Onyx Path, uh, World of Darkness stuff. Um, and then this is Randy. Randy, go ahead and introduce yourself, and then uh, my name is Randy Schooneman. I am the I'm currently the operations manager with Steve Jackson Games. We produce. GURPS as our role-playing games, and uh, Munchkin's our biggest non-role-playing game right now. Um, next. Uh, my name is Ryan Coogan. Uh, my wife and I run Dystopia Rising Lone Star. I'm the lead storyteller for that production, or the uh, lead GM for that production. Uh, we run it out in uh, Belton, Texas. Cool. I'm, I'm Stephen Lumpkin. I'm a video game designer working on Rollercoaster Tycoon World, and also I play a lot of Dungeons and Dragons on Twitch.tv. That's that's basically where I'm from. <laughs> I'm also from the internet. Yeah. Um, yeah. My name is Adam Coble. Uh, I co-wrote a role-playing game called Dungeon World, um, and I am uh, presently a GM in residence for Roll20.net, and I run uh, Swan Song and Mirror Shades for uh, the roleplay property on Twitch. Okay, guys, um, I'm going to go ahead and ask the, uh, the panelists a couple of free, uh, a single freebie question that they can uh, answer for you. But if you guys want to go ahead and have a question of mine and start lining up, um, that would be great. So for my panelists, I want you each to tell me a short story that is uh, a, a funny story about a time you ran a game. Um, so I've worked for Steve Jackson Games for 10 years. One year... I moved to Seattle and worked for a different company. Uh, that year we had a snow day, and everybody, like, everything was canceled. Just, but it was the night we were supposed to do the role-playing game. Um, everybody started calling in, they're like, yeah, we're not gonna do it, we're not gonna do it. I, I just can't make it, I, we can't do it. One of the guys had such a rough week. Andy owned a four by four truck, so he's like, no. And he drove through all of that to everyone's house. <laughs> picked them all up. He said, we're doing this. So they, they roll up. It's a bench seat. And he's got four people, four grown men in the bench so seat we, with him. He's so we know, we know which member of that party was the henchman. <laughs> uh, do you mind if I take a little bit of uh, liberty uh, yeah, with no. uh, a game that, where I was a player? Yeah, yeah. Okay, excellent. Uh, so, uh, my friend, uh, Sean, who uh, is my best friend, uh, we'd known each other for years, he would later become my best man, this is relevant for later on in the story. Um, 
He's, we're running a tabletop game. People don't show up, so we do a real quick improvisation. We're going to just play ourselves. We get superpowers. Things happen. And everyone else goes off to adventure, and I decide I'm going to do what I would do, which is I'm going to stay back because it's really dangerous out there. And he says, well, that's, that's totally fine. And he, he sets a stage, and uh, I'm going to stay back and hang out at the local watering hole. We're going to shoot pool and drink a little bit. And there's some girls there. And, so he, and he says... Uh, the words that I won't forget, he says, you know, you're fitting in, you're having a blast, you're joking around, he says, and it's like you're one of the girls. And I, I thought nothing of it at the time, but at the end of the game, I realized two things. One, my friend Sean was certain that I was gay, and two, that my dry spell had gone much longer than I thought it would. Um, I have... So many amusing things have happened in my games, but they all feel really like, uh, sort of like the group is, is like more likely had, to like appreciate them. To do right, like, yeah, like I, I sort of made a situation and then my players just made funny stuff happen. So probably the funniest situation I did, I run, I run a game called The West Marches on the Roleplay uh, property on Twitch as well. And it's a dark fantasy, like weird fairy tale world. Um, in a previous session, uh, the previous party had set loose an ancient elven king who had been imprisoned for generations, um, and two of them died. It was great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in this episode, the party had gotten lost in the woods, and they were camping for the night, um, and there was a half-orc named Juliet who loved to party, uh, and she was adventuring to find a husband. Great. That's, um, that's how you find a husband, right? They're just like, yeah, yes. Adventure. Yeah, plus one, four, two portions of healing, and married. Yep. <laughs> well, I guess it's an, like an enchanted ring. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I had a... <laughs> I had a bird fly down and it dropped a silver twig at Juliet's feet, and then it stepped back and it turned into ashes. And the entire group just froze, and they took like half an hour talking about this twig, and they were all terrified until Juliet finally just picked it up, decided she was going to pierce her ear and wear it as an earring. So that's that's my story. <laughs> it was weird. Um, I mean, I don't play role-playing games to have fun. I play wins, so... Uh, um, no, I, one time I killed Steven with a staircase. Uh, that was <laughs> You killed me with a bullet. I, the staircase was involved. Yeah, okay, this staircase is like an accessory to the crime. Yes. Um, for me, I think it's, it's less like an individual moment and more watching players take the concept of a campaign and totally turn it on its ear. So for Mirror Shades, we're playing Shadowrun, which I don't know if you know this, has the greatest universe compared to the worst rules. <laughs> and so we're playing Shadowrun, and we start off in this very idealized, like, okay, you're going to be, like, cool operatives and whatever, but the, the cast, the people that I was playing with, they weren't having any of it. And by the third or fourth episode, it had become cyberpunk dating sim instead of, <laughs> like, you know, people always were asking me, like, oh, is it, are you doing, like, pink mohawk or black trench coat? And I'm like, mm, I'm thinking, like, rainbow hot pants. <laughs> so for me, like like Steven said, it's about taking what the players give me and finding fun in that. Because if you try to force them to do what you want, it's not going to happen. All right, thank you. All right, um, so go ahead and ask your first question. All right, I uh, I've been part of a gaming group for 25 years now. We're it's a really successful group. You know, we run year and a half long campaigns, and we have a strong background in 
D&D and Shadowrun and all the GM story driven games. And lately, as we've gotten old, we've lost this tolerance uh, for really mechanic heavy games, so we're transitioning to uh, microscope, dungeon, world, pockets, world, story driven things where the characters, the players, are participating and driving the story more. And we don't have a good founding in it, and so uh, we just ran a fake game. And it ended up being the, the first half of the game was still GM driven, and we kind of figured out some of it towards the end. I'm trying to think of if you guys have suggestions on ways to get players into the driving the story to take that load off the GM in this new narrative driven. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd love to I'd love to talk for a second about the idea of story in a role playing game. Um, so when people refer to when we're talking about our, our, our RPGs, we're talking about the games that we're playing. We talk about story as if it was like a thing that was happening in the moment, when it's really not. Like, story is an emergent property of a game once you leave the table. It's the thing you talk about after the fact. And I think what people are starting to, to realize, and if you look at like a lot of indie games, we're starting to look at how um, player contribution in the rules, like mechanically, can drive a game and it can get people really invested in it. So I think, like you said, the, the first step is picking the right game, right? Because, like, Pathfinder isn't for the same group that Dungeon World is for. And I think a lot of GMs overlook how important it is to start on that very firm level of like, okay, how much do you want to contribute? Do you want to just talk about your characters? Or do we want to go full microscope and nobody has a character and there's no GM, right? So that's where I would start, obviously, and you're, you know, you're going down the right path there. Uh, get buy-in from your players that that's what they want to do. What about um, assuming that, that that's what we want, that we're playing Faker because that's what we want to do? Are there ways to encourage contribution from the players to help them drive the story instead of saying, here's what happens as opposed to asking questions of the GM? I have a recent anecdote about that, which is that I've been looking for a way to encourage my players to choose what they're doing, because the West Marches is a sandbox game, um, and it, it's much harder on me if I'm presenting them with quests, and much easier if I get them to say, here's what I want to do, Stephen. So finally I just said, look, you get experience points if you bring a quest that you want to do to me. <laughs> and, and, the, and immediately one of them was like, I want to do this quest. I was like, great. Have 500 experience. <laughs> so, so they get the they get the experience if they propose it to the group and the group says yes. So it's like, just do the thing the other person wants to do. Great. <laughs> and then they get the experience for completing it, and then it worked out really great so far. Look at the look at the reward structure in the game, right? Like it doesn't have to be a tacked on thing. It doesn't have to be a hack. The game, what the players are rewarded for is what the game is about, and that's what they're going to do. And if there's nothing in the game rewarding them for contributing, they're not going to do it. They have no incentive to. That's All right, thanks, guys. Hello. So, that's good. Okay, so, been DMing for majority of my life, over a decade and everything. And uh, one thing that I've been having or noting with the most recent campaign of players that I've had is the exact opposite of what kind of you guys were just talking about is normally when uh, they get to high, higher level of something, for example, introducing this group of tabletops with D&D, usually uh, present quests that I usually don't know how to solve and have the players figure out how to solve it. However, this current group doesn't want that. So when I start going into making up quest ideas for them or anything, they become stagnant, more along the same type of thing. For example, go and kill this, or maybe deal with some stupid political alliances constantly over and over again. What would you guys recommend to actually help with that? Is it that they don't know 
um, how to deal with that, uh, how to cope with that problem, or that they just literally don't want to? It's a mixture of both. Okay. I've tried to help them with knowing how to, but they just shut off when it's difficult. They don't want it to be difficult. Are you asking more about um, how to get your players invested, or how to like generate more ideas how for to yourself? More ideas mostly. Okay. To like I've present different quests. Try yeah. To turn it on its head. If you're, if all they're going to do is go wipe out a village of kobolds and earn ten gold for it, after they earn the ten gold, con convince them, tell them that it was actually genocide, and the people who paid them the ten gold were the evil ones. Reasonable, <laughs> <laughs> so they at least, like, well, maybe this murder for hire thing isn't for us, and we should think these things through a little more. I mean, if, if all your players want to do is, like, murder villages, that's what the game is about, right? You don't get to be like, oh, guys, we're not playing murder village game. <laughs> they're, they're all like, there's, what, four of them and one of you, and they're like, no, we're going to go murder a village. <laughs> like, but it was genocide, and they're like, I know, I checked the genocide box. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> It's not so much they just want to go and murder things, it's that they have a general scope of what they want to accomplish in the campaign, but when in doing it, there are certain things they need to do to make it easier in the end, and coming up with what to do on the in between is kind of one of the issues. I have a suggestion. Oh, Ryan, are you Yeah. Uh, so, it, to me, this kind of sounds like a scaffolding problem, you know, that they know where they kind of want to go, but they don't know how to get there. And uh, it, you may have to educate them on how to do that. And if so, if the goal is, I want you to be able to solve a problem, right? Here's a problem, go run out there and solve it. Then you start with, here's a problem and here's a solution, right? I will tell you how to, what, this is the thing to do, one choice. Then we, later on, we build, we have the next problem, the next quest, there are three things that we do, right? Then the next time, there's two things that I'm gonna suggest, and what do you think? And then the next time, it's, well, here's an idea that I have, and what are your ideas? And, and that can kind of start to teach them to think for themselves and come up with their own solutions if that's what the problem is, if that's what they want to do, but just don't know how to get there. Yeah, right. and this is going to be the first of many times of me beating a dead horse, but make sure you're playing the right game for the kind of things that they want to do. And it sounds like the planning part, either they're not interested in or they get tangled up in that. And there are games, like uh, if you check out uh, Blades in the Dark, that game is a, like a medieval thief like heist game, basically you play gang thieves. And to skip over all that planning bullshit, you just jump right into the heist. And it allows the players to take flashbacks during it. So they're like, oh, of course I've got my grappling hook. Okay, let's flashback to you getting the grappling hook. And then we jump back into the heist. So they're not planning, they're just doing. And they choose when they want to be prepared for a thing. And they can flashback because then you have context for that kind of thing. And they're still driving the story that yeah. they want to play. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. What was the name of that last game? That's called Blades in the Dark. It's a game by John Harper. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey guys, uh, I have a kind of more specific question. So I'm running a, I'm taking an adaptation of, my players don't know this, so this is kind of the, the gag, um, is that I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell this to <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call them individually and yeah. tell on you. Yeah, I know, right? No. Uh, I deserve it. Um, so we're playing we're playing a short six-session fifth ed campaign. Uh, it's kind of a break in between our Kill Villages campaign, because we have a, that's, they love to check the and uh, I am doing a Power Rangers campaign. So they're all going to be low-level monks, and they become high-level monks. So I, I kind of came to, uh, I, you know, I'm trying to come up with like, oh, you flip over your character sheets to morph, and other sorts of fun gags. So I was kind of looking for your advice on what are some ways I can sell the feel of being a ridiculous, over-the-top, super-sentai Power Ranger. Like, how do I sell that feeling? Well, in the fifth edition. 
<laughs> Obviously, you can never use a higher level spell until you've exhausted your lower level spell slots. <laughs> you can tie escalation in too, right? Like the because if you watch an episode of Power Rangers, right, yeah, they always get their ass kicked first. Yeah. And it's very formulaic. It's like fight the nobodies, beat the nobodies. Fight the big guy, get your ass kicked. Turn into a giant robot, kill the bad guy, boom, game's over. Right. <laughs> so building that kind of pacing in is, you look at the way the mechanics pace the game already, and hit points is the primary pacing mechanic right. in D&D, right? And yeah. So look at how that works in places where you can trigger things at certain points during the pacing, right? So you can be like, I'm gonna throw this bad guy at you until you run out of hit points. And you can, you can wear him down a little, yeah. but you can't beat him in this current mode. You need, you know, Megazord to do that. Yeah, and actually, I had the Megazord mechanics, and I was looking especially for stuff that sells like the physical feel, like you know, Morphin, any sort of like fighting. So I didn't know how you felt about stuff where you like flip cards and do kind of out of out of game actions. Green like, props. Like, it depends on the group. Like, yeah. if if you really want to sell it as like this is completely different from the other stuff we do, bring some toys or bring like here's your plastic sword that doesn't distract from it, but you can kind of get into it and it shows you. Eh? Yeah. Or luchador masks that they put on when they mourn. <laughs> Something where you're like, this is kind of a silly thing, yeah. but it get into it. And yeah, when all the robots join together, make everyone sit in one chair. Yeah, some people. <laughs> So what I want to know if like you've ever as GMs sort of felt like if you wanted to be a player instead of GMing, and if so, how do you cope with that, or how do you fix that problem? So your your friend group has convinced you to run a game for them, but you don't really want to. I do want to, but sometimes I think like well, most of my friends are won't have the creativity to like deal with this. And so I want to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's great. Um, and that's like the I, I almost exclusively GM games now. The only game I play in is the one that Adam runs. Um, so I GM like nine games to every game that I play. Uh, and that's because, and we were just talking about this beforehand. We, we'll go somewhere and we'll be like, oh, I really want to play D and D. Like that would be so fun to like go kill a dragon or like you know climb a castle or something like that. Who can I get to play D&D with me? Okay, you guys, play D&D with me, I'll run it. Right? But then I'm not the one playing, or as a player. But um, I, it, it's fun, right? Like, uh, go all out. I think, you know, if you're just getting started, then... Your, your advice was, you'll do great. It sounds like you're you're maybe a little bit worried about how to step into that role, and how to how to, like, take ownership of being the GM, like... Go for it. Yeah, grab it by the horns. You know what kind of stories fascinate you. Figure out, like, read them or look at the art that you like and then pick it apart and say, okay, I'm going to have, you know, this painting be an adventure for my game. And then there you go. It's, learn, learn by doing. Go. Uh, yeah, it's, so it's going to be 
GMing is gratifying in a very different way, yeah. and and that's okay, right? Um, it, it may take some getting used to on that, but it really is immensely gratifying. You're, you're not going to get the satisfaction of, I killed the dragon, I got the loot. You're going to get the satisfaction of looking around uh, every now and again at a group of people whose jaws have hit the floor, and that feels way better. Yeah, they it is. kill the dragon, but you have an infinite supply of dragons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I know which one I would <laughs> I think as my last point, uh, just the fact that of your friends group, you're the one who says, oh, I, I would like to do that. You're already on the right path. Yeah. Uh, quick question about GM preparation. Uh, do you guys prefer to do heavy preparation and flesh out as many details as you can? Or do you rely on kind of a framework and then do improvisation? Which is your favorite and what are the pros and cons of each? I think Brian should handle this. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, uh, so my background is uh, I uh, storytell LARP, right? Which is really chaotic, right? I mean, it's, it's hundreds of people, literally, rather than uh, a table. So uh, any plan instantly kind of like goes out the window a lot of the time. Um, my preferred method, uh, uh, once upon a time, I was a teacher, right? Um, and yeah, <laughs> if you're also a teacher, by the way, you're an amazing person, and you have more patience than I do. So, um, so uh, and one of the practices that uh, teaching taught me, which I think has a lot of parallels with uh, GMing, is to backwards design. And so, uh, when I'm looking at an encounter. Uh, I like to think about what am, what is my objective? What do I have to do? Uh, I want to tailor the story to do that. And as long as I've met that objective, then I'm really quite content. And, and that can be fairly open. How the players interact with that and deal with that is totally fine. Uh, I like to have a lot of setting material to fall back on so that way when I'm not prepared for plans D through Z that my players have come up with, that's fine. If I know the setting really well and I know the groups involved and how they interact, then I don't need to know, anticipate every single eventuality. I know how the world works. And I, I think it's more valuable to know how the world works and what is mission critical. Yeah, and I think, I think it's important to look at, um, like when, when, when we refer to setting in game design, often people think like the place the game takes place in, right? they think like the kingdom of the elves and whatever, that bullshit. But it's, it's more than that, setting is about the ongoing action that's happening in the game and narrative as it stands. So all you really need to be prepared for is the understanding of what the world is like now and the kinds of things that might happen in it and what would happen if the PCs weren't there. Right? What's, what's the world look like in a PC vacuum? It's probably pretty happy, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, they're murdering villages, so yeah. Yeah, if you're, if, you're playing, if you're playing a good game, the game will give you guidance around like, how much prep to do, and as you're playing it, you'll learn, like, okay, I spent four hours designing a thing that you know, they blew through in an hour, or the vice versa. You'd be like, I spent a day working on this, and we've been doing it for a month. So it's really like be flexible with yourself, and the more you GM, the more uh, you're going to build up a skill set around improvising within that prepared framework. You know. Thank you, guys. Hello. Yep. Uh, so okay, my question um, comes from the fact that when I started um, playing Dungeons and Dragons and started GMing, 
Uh, it was between me and a bunch of my friends who are engineers. So we really like rules. We really like rules. We really like math. So yeah, I mean, um, the G in RPG stands for game. Yeah. So, <laughs> so we, um, we we basically were all min-max monsters. You walk into a room, everybody lights on fire, and then they all die. Um, but I started GMing at a public game store, and these are people who are new to Dungeons and Dragons, new to roleplay, so they are not good at min-maxing. So they don't, uh, our combat always bogs down. Like, it always goes really slow, because sure. it's not like, I walk in, I flank this way, sneak attack, crit, everyone's alive. It's not like that with these guys. They're just like, my spell is, I can walk on water. Um, and we've had fun with it, but um, my question is, how can I either minimize combat, or but still provide an effective challenge for the adventure, and or how can I speed up combat and still make them feel effective as you know warriors and strong people? I'm going to go ahead and suggest you pick up a copy of Dungeon World, available at fine retailers. <laughs> now it's I mean it's the game, right? Like there there is something beautiful about the team of elite like game players who are like we know how to eviscerate our foes in two rounds and not take any damage. Let me tell you about the time Adam killed a wizard with a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I am the worst because I play, and I, I made a joke about this before, I play D&D to win because it's a game and there are ways to win at Dungeons and Dragons. Like, don't listen to wizards when they're like, you win, you win by having fun. It's like, no, you, you win by killing stuff and getting experience. But <laughs> think, about, think about why you're playing with these people, right? Like, if you're not having a fun time playing with new players, like you gotta like the you were saying about being a teacher. Like part of the fun of being a GM with new players is like I'm gonna show you this like really cool thing you've never experienced before, and it takes a hell of a lot of patience to be like, why aren't you backstabbing? Backstabbing? Fucking backstab! <laughs> but you get a different kind of fun out of it. Are the engineers in that group too? No, no. It's mm -hmm. it's. Um, I play a different game with my engineer friends. They just they max everyone's dead. Bring them. <laughs> Bring them. Have them teach the other guys. Oh, okay. <laughs> and even if you're not, I mean, you never throw an amateur in the ring with a pro. So if the monsters, if they're having a hard time with the monsters, these are, treat them like adventurers who maybe shouldn't be adventuring and give them easier, ta like, yeah, come have fun. We want you to be, but your characters aren't set up to go destroy a dragon. Maybe we should take it down five notches. They're getting pity quests from the village. No. <laughs> If it's going to take an hour to, to finish this off and nobody, in the end, they're going to be unsatisfied if, if when you see it coming, you can go, okay, um, how do I keep the, you know, let's keep the story running. They're not going to be maximum. They're there not going to come up with the backstab. So there are a couple of, oh, sorry. I, I actually have a, a completely different answer from all of you. Um, and I don't normally weigh in, but I'd like to on this one. Uh, divorce yourself from the rules. You. They are already divorced from the rules. They don't know the rules very well. They're learning. They're new. They don't know how to do all the, the awesome things that you think they should be doing. So when you design your combat, you're designing it for your engineer friends, and you're forgetting that you're not running for your engineer friends. So. That's okay though. Go ahead and design your system the way you want to, design your encounters the way you want to, but when you see your players faltering and not doing the things you want them to do, but they want to walk on water, have that be important and let them do it. And I don't know, let them hit the monster 10 times and then it's dead no matter how many hit points it actually has. 
divorce yourself from what the actual rules say and make sure that the experience for your players is fun and rewarding regardless of what they do. Now if they're like, well, there's a monster over there and we want to run away from it and walk on water and play with fairies, then it's different, right? But if they're actually trying to fight and they're just doing it poorly, you know, you can give them hints and give them, you know, tips or give them like crazy magical items that will slay the monster in one hit if they can just hit it. Uh, things like things like that, um, and that will help them feel like this game that they're playing is rewarding. And then you can step up the level of encouragement of how many rules they are actually incorporating into the game as you go. It's not all that different from what I was saying. No, we're not. That. <laughs> uh, but I didn't tell them to go fight sheep. <laughs> Maybe they kick that sheep and have a great time doing it. Sheep are more chick all the next anyway. My thoughts are kind of between the two. Um, I have a couple of tricks that I use to speed up combat, just to like keep things moving. And one is just saying, "Okay, here's the situation. What do you do?" And then if they're like, "Oh, looking at their character sheet," then I just kind of repeat. I'll say, "Okay." You know, you're talking about what you want to do, but here's the situation. Goblin's in front of you, he's got a dagger. What are you going to do? He's, he's waving the dagger in the direction of your gut. What are you going to do? <laughs> like, where would, you, where would you have learned such a trick, Stephen? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I did that before Dungeon World also. Um, and sometimes at a table, I'll just you have a timer. It's like a 60-second egg timer. When the timer's up, you take the defensive action for your turn. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> Hi. Uh, hey. I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for like at least six years now. That's a long time to be playing D and D. Are you yeah. tired? Mm. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> I took a break just now. Um, <laughs> Thank God. Welcome. Uh, <laughs> the world has changed so much since 2009. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I've been DMing for like just just recently. Probably just started this year. Or, sorry, last year. Um, and one of the biggest problems I've been running into is creating these really great puzzles, these, these really great, oh man, what are you gonna do? And having them rely on skill checks and, and stuff like that, and then, so they're like, yeah, I'm gonna cast knock. So like, well, let's have to, it unlocks the door. Oh, <laughs> shit. <laughs> how, how do you prepare for that? How do you, and, and how do you come back when this puzzle that was supposed to like, lead them through a house to find the blue key is solved like that. I have a general comment about your question, or rather the question underlying your question, which is, if I may paraphrase, I spent so much effort preparing this awesome thing, my players did something I didn't expect, and my prep was worth nothing. Yeah. What do I do? And the answer is, you give your players the thumbs up, smile, a big smile, and go, next thing. And give them leprosy. And yeah, and you give them leprosy. And kind of the, the reason that I say that is because like, if you, if you built this big puzzle, like, it's really rewarding for you to devise the puzzle. But then for the players, it's really rewarding for them to level up and to get access to the spell that invalidates your puzzle. Because that's how player progress is felt in-game. Where they can be like, oh, here's all this complicated bullshit the GM would have us be doing, but... Hey, <laughs> like, that feels good for them. So when you are surprised and you're like, oh, wow, I didn't even know you could do that, they feel extra clever, which is fun. And then you say, okay, now they can do that. I'll do other things next time. Um, but like generally, it's the same with any prep. When you prepped a quest and then the players either just like intuit who the bad guy is and go kill him or like they just want to do something else, like 
half of the fun for me as the GM is that feeling of not knowing what the players are going to do or how they're going to tackle the challenges I put in front of them, and then being able to say, like, yep, that's par for the course, great, good job, let's, let's keep going. And that puzzle's not gone. I mean, there's always another yep. day. Yep. Something can come up, maybe they get blinded or something for it, but something that invalidates that, like... Yeah, that puzzle still that that work is still there, and you can you can drag it out and go. Not so tough without your spell, are you? <laughs> I mean, you don't want to engage in a horseshit arms race with your right, players. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, but it's still there. The last one spells you can't cast spells with no arms, can you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the work is done. That stuff is still there for you to use when it's appropriate later. It comes up. Yeah, anything that the players don't see at the table never happens. So just repurpose it and use it somewhere else. Yep. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, um, you, you will ask a question, but I'm just going to give you guys a perspective. We're at like a 30 minute mark, so let's try to get only like one or two people to answer these questions so we can, we've still got a really long line. Alright? Hey guys, um, so I've been playing D&D uh, &D as a player for a couple of years, and I've kind of gotten to the point where I'd like to move into a more like, you know, I'd like to gym, uh, but I know that in my group of friends, there are at least several guys who, you know, have been GMs for a long time. They pretty much run all of our games. And I know that, you know, I could probably have one of them, like, you know, take me under their wing and teach me the basics and everything. But I know that whenever I get around to GMing my first game, those guys are going to be in it. And they're going to be watching me and everything like that. And so my question to you is, as a GM playing with other GMs, how do you form something to make, basically make a GM feel like a player again? Ah. Uh. Well, um, from, from my experience playing with other GMs, <laughs> GMs are the best players. And the reason for that is because like, there's lots of things you can do as a player to help people at your table feel comfortable, and like, the GM who's rolling, running things feel comfortable, and like, the other players feel comfortable. And like, GMs know all about it because we know about like, spotlighting, spotlighting character action, and we know all the rules, and um, running a game for other GMs, for me, is way more relaxing. Um, and like, you know your specific group of friends better than I do, of course, but um, it may not be as big a deal as, as you might think it might be. What do you think, Adam? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think that, that if they're decent human beings, which most GMs are not, um, <laughs> then, yeah, their job is going to be to help you make the game fun, right? And they're going to they're gonna help. Whether it's just, like, we know the rules and we're going to help, like, remind you when you're like, oh, how much damage is this weapon supposed to do? Like, they can jump in. And talk to them beforehand. Be like, "Hey, this is my first game GMing. Like, I'd really love it if everybody could like be on board and not like push me really hard. Like, just take it easy. Because again, like, they're supposedly your friends. So hopefully, they'll they'll do that for you." Awesome. Thank you, guys. Hey. Um, so I'm doing my first GMing thing. We've been going for about a month and a half. We're going through the D&D Fifth Edition starter, which is super fun. Having a blast. Did the bug bear kill anybody? Huh? Did the bug bear kill anybody? Almost. Yeah. One yeah. Um, so we're having a great time. It's a really huge fleshed out world. We're starting to like get like a little past the two-thirds mark on everything. And now I realize like, holy well, shit, I have to redo all this for us to be able to keep playing. So like what kind of advice do you do y'all have for going and creating a world, creating something that your players can live in? Uh I would uh so I like to sit down, uh, figure out what 
uh, what's the theme, uh, what kind of style game am I trying to run, and then I go read a bunch of books, I watch a bunch of movies, I try to pour as much inspiration into my eyeballs as I can physically get in there. Um, and then once I have all that in, then I start to write. Um, you think of Clockwork Orange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty similar. <laughs> that's a horror game, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's honestly where I would start. And then and then you can kind of start to flesh out the details yeah, in the media world. Media literacy makes for awesome GMs. Just like find stuff that you like and rip it off. <laughs> you have my permission. <laughs> Uh, Alright, so I got one question along the lines of uh, every single time that I start off an adventure with my group of friends, uh, it always starts off with a scene from Lord of the Rings. You have my axe, you have a bow, you know, everything's very serious. And then, like, six sessions in, yeah. it turns into Monty Python. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I love it. Uh, I love the Monty Python like, antics and things like that, but it really takes me away as a GM, in a sense, from, you know, this, we gotta do something, and we gotta do it now, and then it's just like, you know, it's a model. So, uh, in your guys' experience, how do you, I'm not saying stop the Monty Python-ness, but, like, have the Monty Python-ness, but you guys, destroy things and do awesome things. Are you asking more about keeping the game thematically intact? Yes. Or more about keeping the players on track? Uh, it's a little bit of both, but players keep on track, but then like... It's silly. Yes. Right. Um, so I ran a game of King Arthur Pendragon, which if you haven't played, you should, because it's awesome. It's a fantastic game. It's super great. But it's a game about Arthurian knights set in the time of King Arthur. So I said, okay, it's a silly game. <laughs> everybody gets one, and if you make a second one, I kill your character. And, <laughs> and nobody had any question what I was talking about. It was obvious. So, like, I mean, I have no qualms saying, like, you know, this is the kind of style of game we're trying to play. We're trying to be serious. Like, there are obvious jokes about Monty Python. Don't do it. Like, that's, that's how I have approached that challenge in the past. I think you can also build time to time for that in to your game. Like, uh, so uh, we, call those, we call those silly moments Sunday mods because Sunday everyone is dopey and stupid by the end of a weekend of LARPing. Mm. Um, so we do all the derpy, dopey, dumb shit on Sunday because it's fun and who cares and then Saturday night Friday night then we do the scary stuff and so you can kind of build that into your session where maybe in the beginning we're going to start off really kind of slow and then we'll build up to the exciting dark stuff and then we'll get you know dopey again or we'll start off really high and then you know after it's been really intense then we'll get stupid and fun again but you can also just give your players cues for times when that's appropriate and they'll kind of Run along with it. Yeah. I want to stress I'm not anti silliness or whatever, but um, like sometimes it's not within the, the theme of the game. There's there's also silliness that does work within the theme of your game, which I love, and I'm an incredibly silly player. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, think about these things. Thank you very much. Sorry, I'm sorry.
Okay, so uh, as a GM myself, I personally love using props and trying to enhance the atmosphere of my games. What are y'all's personal beliefs on those? And have you seen any particularly unique instances of that occurring? As long as they're not a distraction, uh, if the prop makes noise or something like that and it, it's really pulling everybody out of the situation, I mean, then it's, then it's something you don't really want there, but if everybody's like down with the prop and, and the, the thing on the table is something to help them generate, generate ideas and have fun, I mean, go nuts, just play the game. That's what everybody wants to do. My, my feelings about props are, ain't nobody got time for that shit. <laughs> I gotta run a game. Like, if, if it's something you like doing, and you're like, having a really fun time drawing the map, and staining it in the tea, and burning the edges and stuff, fucking rock on, man. That's for you. That's for you, not for them. But if you're like, desperate to like, finish the prop before the session, and it's causing you stress, don't do it. Don't do it. It's, I love props. Yeah, like, they're, they're fun if it's, if it's part of your prep, and it's like a, an experience for you, right? Part of your lonely fun. <laughs> I, I don't get to use them because I play online all the time. I love props. <laughs> okay, thank you. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, so I've been a player the majority of my life, and I've noticed that my friends um, are way too happy, so I want to become a DM and make them. Fucking alright. Tips for beginners uh, for just. Getting the role, getting used to the role. Go down into the dark, deep place inside you where you keep your hope and break it. <laughs> <laughs> Just let that hate fill you. No, not really. Don't do that. That's not really not really psychiatric uh, It's easy to start with a published adventure, get your handle on how to run games and keep things moving forwards. When you're looking at creating stuff, I mean, um, Oh God, what's your name? What is it? <laughs> it's Ryan. What Ryan said, I just remembered it. What Ryan said earlier about like filling your brain with the content that you love and then trying to recreate it at the table is fantastic advice that I use every time I prep, so. And don't forget too that a GM is just a player with different rules. Like, it's not a big deal. Being a GM, not a big deal. This is all bullshit. Like, <laughs> you're just a person who's got responsibility for a different part of the game than you're used to. And it's it's not you against them. It's, no. You're all there to have fun together. <laughs> hey, um, so I've got a homebrew setting that I've been doing for a while, and I had a brief rebellion against all that is Tolkien. Um, <laughs> Yeah, got rid of Excellent. Made a setting without any of them. Um, and you know, when I was building the setting initially, um, I had a group who I regularly played with, um, talked to them a lot, we bounced a lot of ideas off, and a lot of that's still in the core where I'm doing with it today. Well, a few of my other friends in another circle have discovered that I have DMing experience and have demanded I run a game for them, which I probably foolishly agreed to. But the realization I have is, I'm about to run this setting with a bunch of people who have never, you know, really played a game outside of the standard, you know, dwarves are Scottish, the elves all hate you, and halflings like all want to have fun. So I was trying to figure out for the, you know, people who don't have an idea of this homebrew setting besides hoping that they all read the player's guide before we all get started with it. Players don't they, won't, they won't. So, during <laughs> the game, kind of set the, okay, since none of these exist, these are the things that exist instead, to, you know, do that as part of the game. 
the best the best way to impart setting is uh, in character creation. Like telling people what their options are also implies that those things exist in the world. Um, so having a, a, I don't know if you're like building a system to go along with this setting. Oh, just use the Pathfinder. Yeah, so find places in, in the character creation process that you can show off the setting. Um, you know, most of, the, most of the games that do this really evocatively have a place that by the time you're done with the character, not only do you know who you are, but you know where you came from and you know like what your culture is about. Um, so see if you can find an opportunity to do that during when the character is being made. Thank you. It's cool, man. Sorry, make a will save. We believe, I believe in you. <laughs> you. Get plus two bonus. Um, sometimes when I'm jamming, I have players that can't really. I have some players who are like the one guy who is always the, I'm gonna blow everything up with a wizard, and he always knows what he's doing, he's very good into the rules, and he is basically first shit on the setting, always. And then I have a guy who's really good at the setting, and sometimes he's, he always has bad luck with the rules, but he never knows what he wants to do. And then I have a couple other guys, like one guy is always a Cthulhu worshiper, even if we're in Cthulhu or not. <laughs> Always with the tentacles. <laughs> it's really hard to get them going sometimes, and then if they lose their motivation, like, um, they completely, totally fuck up an encounter, but they're not dead, so they have to continue and they have no direction. I don't know where to go from there, because I usually have character-driven lots. I don't know how to make a goal-oriented plot that doesn't involve beating the crap out of some dude. That is a challenge in a game whose mechanics are primarily about beating the crap out of dudes. <laughs> yeah, that's tough. It um, sounds like your players are all playing different games. Like, yeah. You know, I yeah, sit, sit them down as not characters, but as people and be like, what's fun about role playing for all y'all? And can we find a game and campaign that fulfills all of those things? And maybe not all the time for everybody. Maybe today's going to be combat guys day. And next time is going to be a little bit more focused on interacting with NPCs. But I think a lot of people forget that the people they play role-playing games with are people that you can have a conversation about things and like get everybody to buy in beforehand. And I would start there. Like the game won't fix that for you. Okay. Well, one of the skills that um, I think some of the strongest GMs I've played with do very regularly is that will focus on for for a short period of time, you know, 15, 20 minutes on like one character's sort of scene or actions or whatever's going on, and then they'll contrast that with something that one of the other characters will really enjoy. So we'll be going from negotiating in the back room of a bar to a brawl that breaks out in the front of the bar. And then it's like, yeah, there's there's some characters who are much more interested in the negotiations. There's some characters really all they want to do is a chance to shoot things or, or punch things. Um, and figuring out how you can organically begin switching scenes to keep these people all engaged enough and readily enough to keep them in the game, that's, it just it comes with practice. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, you're going to ask your question. So, um, some of you might be looking at your watches going, oh my god, we only have five minutes left, haha, lies. Um, <laughs> so we got started about ten minutes late, and so I'm pushing our panel ten minutes later, so the, the other panel can go steal like we did. Um, <laughs> so we still have about fifteen minutes left. Um, probably uh, in a minute I'm going to do like a, a lightning round of questions, but go ahead and keep going. Don't, don't freak out again. Hello. Hey. Um, I'm looking to run a darker themed game, uh, suspense horror, and I'm looking for some tips of how to 
how to keep the atmosphere. Um, I'm a genuinely silly person, and so I have trouble with that. And uh, so how, how would I try and keep the atmosphere kind of dark and keep the suspense around? Can I ask you which game system you're running? Um, I've got World of Darkness, and I've got uh, Fifth Ed. Uh, right now they're running Fifth Ed. But you want to transition to like World of Darkness? No, I think I'd like to say are you asking how you can uh, just kind of alter your demeanor to better suit the game, or are you talking about the environment, like the actual game space? Um, so I'm a big fan of mood. You know, if I'm going to play a dark-themed game, I like having the lights set down. You know, um, I'm cool with candles and like little, like little like mood music and stuff like that. Um, I also think there's a lot to be said for just getting in the headspace um, and. Uh, and different people have way, different ways of doing that. I like to listen to music um, if I'm going to focus on a dark story and get my. And if I get myself there, then I find it's a lot easier for my players to meet me halfway. The, the fact that you already know that there are certain players who like certain things, it's like you're, you're five steps ahead of where many people are when they GM their first game. So be aware of that and then start looking for opportunities to feed what each person likes at the table and you'll just get better at it over time. Thank you. Okay, really quickly, uh, we're going to do kind of a, uh, a round robin. So this question, I want Randy to field and then Ryan and then... Stephen and Adam, and then back around again, so we can try to get everybody's questions answered. So, go for it. Here we go. Okay, so I have uh, been DMing for about two issues. I'm currently growing DMing a group of uh, four players, and a lot of times uh, the, we'll be playing session, and all of my characters love role playing, which I think is freaking amazing, because that's my favorite part of the game. But uh, a lot of times, especially during combat, it turns into a lot of, oh, you roll the dice, and you hit, and you miss, and you deal like five damage, and you're done. How can I pull a more role-playing aspect into um, the game, and like keep it on role-playing? Um, are you using the right system? I mean, they, they've covered it a lot. Is it the right system for what you want to do? I use a 3.5. use what? 3.5. Okay. Um, That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the running for that kind of 
play, I think. Like, I mean, your point is, when you find the game that fits the kind of play style that everybody wants to play. Yeah, you, you may be comfortable with that set, but you might have, the best thing for you might be leaving that comfort zone and going to a, a setting that, or not a setting, but a, a, a product that pushes what you guys want to do in your game a little more. Dungeon World. <laughs> does, that, does that help you? Oh, um, so pretty sure I'm asking the right group here, but uh, I have a bunch of friends who live in Iowa and they want to play a game with me. What are some tips, tricks, and things to avoid about setting up a long distance game? What are some challenges and how can I go overcome them? That's, yeah. I'll give you my question. <laughs> Done. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Roll20.net is a really fantastic site for long distance playing. Skype is a really great tool set. Um, the hardest part of it is that everybody has a computer in front of them and therefore they are perhaps more likely to check out and like read Twitter while they're playing your game. Um, you know, it happens sometimes, but if they're... Across the table and smack yep. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's but actually less. It's actually less disruptive because at the table, if someone takes their phone out and starts looking at it, yeah. everyone notices. But if somebody all tabs and is looking at Twitter when they're not doing something on screen, no one. You don't notice. Their eyes are just moving somewhere else. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. So, it's it's just about setting that time and getting people together. But the tools are really really great actually. Oh. Cool. Thank you. Uh, a lot of D&D players here, so give a quick shout out to Onyx Pat. I've got a lot of yeah. 20 years yeah. of D&D Yeah! I'm a, <laughs> a long-time mage player, way too long. No way to talk about that crazy stuff. <laughs> okay, so I want to I make a fireball, and I have forces too, but I don't have any quintessence. How do I, what am I supposed to do again? Propane. Propane thing. Ask your question. <laughs> <laughs> so, Reese, before, I had a group that we met regularly and weekly, and it was really easy to have that, that system work, and we could get on epic adventures, and it was great. But as we all grew up and separated and started going online and being more asynchronous with our session, it became a lot more difficult to do more epic, broader campaigns, because instead of being able to sit down once a week for hours at a time, it's now once every couple of weeks for a couple hours at a time. How do you step, stitch together a cohesive campaign in that time that still has the epic, like powerful feeling without it just being a monster of the day game every week? All right, so uh, ju just to kind of condense that all down, uh, the frequency that you guys have met has changed, right? You're meeting how often? Uh, once every couple of weeks online for uh, only a couple hours. You can do that, man. Um, so. Uh, it will help to bookend stuff. Um, when stuff that's important information that you want them to remember happens at the end, right? So things that, you know, two, next time on, that stuff happens at the end, in the last 30 minutes of the session. Um, the next session, the first 30 minutes, is last time on. And you can either do that as literally telling them what happened and reminding them. You can build that into the story uh, somehow and have some mechanism or some character um, or some prop or whatever, whose task it is to kind of recover that information. Um, it'll probably require a little bit more diligent note-taking, maybe on your part, and reminding them and kind of giving them you know, cues which may be as subtle as like a look or a remember when or a, or whatever. But yeah, it's it's just going to involve reminding people about that stuff more and cutting out all the extra stuff, right? All the extra little stuff. Maybe now that goes away and we just focus on 
the stuff that's that's critical to the story because we have less time to work in. Thank you. Sure. Okay, so I have a, a more general GM question. Um, I've done gaming with like small groups, only like three people, as many as nine people, as many as a hundred who have actually done the problems in North Ryan's game. Um, what are some of, I would say, the homework problems or challenges that you have to overcome as a storyteller with adding additional players and expanding your player base? At what point would you draw the line? And if you cannot draw the line, how do you cope and overcome the problem of adding additional players? How do you not? How do you? How do you not draw the line? Are people just showing up at your house and you're like, "Get out for me!" And you're like, "Please get out!" And like, no, I live here now. <laughs> it is. I might have just a, a bunch of friends that everyone wants to be a part of it. Um, don't don't try to adjust the game for the number of players. Uh, like pick the game for how many people you have to play with. Like if you're playing with twelve people, play basic D&D. If you're playing with three people, play something more complex like Burning Wheel. Like you're never gonna find a game that's gonna be as good with two people as it is with twelve. So right game, right amount of people. I think is the, is the main thing there. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, my friends and I uh, we've been playing D and then. We tried out Shadowrun, but because we loved the setting, but the rules were And so I guess what would be the easiest way to try and maintain that setting that was so awesome that I guess adjust the rules to be more accessible? No, no, you want it less complicated, not more. <laughs> answer. No, it's your answer. <laughs> I, I, it's, this is, might be another, are you using the right system thing. I mean, I, I guess you, you, you change systems and you like the story when you, um, the system we produce, uh, GURPS, there is no base story. The whole idea is you can, it's general. So you can take whatever pieces, you can take those, those parts from other stories and do your best to, to slot in these um, points based. And if the, the points don't feel right, you change them. You're, I mean, you're in control. So if the, the system's still not quite working right for you when you put another one on, the part of the system needs to change and take your power and do it. Thank you. Well, there's also a game called Shadow Hack. Google it. It's a, an adaptation of a game called Redbox Hack. That's like a rule simple, based on like just focusing on the setting of Shadowrun. So check it out. That might work for you. Okay. okay. Uh, really quickly, uh, panelists, from now on, let's try to limit uh, answers to like a sentence or two. Uh, and yeah, I know. And if you could kind of make your questions as concise as possible, I would appreciate it because you still have like a bunch of people. And we've only got like five minutes left. Yeah. All right. Um, Oh, sorry. Um, the question I have is, I have got, uh, we have been playing for the past year and a half uh, with the Fantasy Flight Star Wars, and it's gotten to the point where they've gotten so powerful, I have run into the issue is, how do I make the encounter uh, not only engaging, but uh, a challenge for the players when they can, on a dime, call an orbital strike here, wipe out platoons of stormtroopers. Uh, I want to get a challenge that is more uh, something that they really can't handle, like within an instant. It'd be something that'd be drawn out. 
so I think your options are to one either uh, take away some of the things or limit some of the things that they have access to, and and you can do that without just saying here I'm going to take away your toys, but provide some challenge and some story reason why that's going to go away. Um, also. Uh, you may have reached the end of your story. Like, you may just be out-leveling the game, and it's time to either kill characters, and people make new characters, and the story continues in a new way, or we have an epic end-of-story thing, and we go play something new, right? But of, every story has an ending, man. Thank you. So, everyone started the game in a tavern, uh, mysterious benefactor hiring parties, and villages under attack. What's a more interesting opening for a campaign? Literally everything. Anything <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, like, uh, start in Medias Race, start, like, out in the cave, or you've, you've uncovered the magical box, what's inside, or, um, you know, think about, I, I like to think about screenwriting, because... Like, generally, what the rule is, if, if a scene isn't serving at least two purposes, you should cut it. So, like, that scene where they're all in a tavern just talking to each other is definitely only serving one purpose, if that. Like, cut it. Get rid of it. Go do something else. Um, and look to other media for inspiration for what's, what's cool. Alright. Great. Thank you. Um... I have a character in one of my campaigns who has based his character on Frank Underwood from House of Cards. <laughs> and while the rest of the group wants to go off on adventures and fight monsters and save the realm, his character literally wants to take one of the other characters and put them into a political office. <laughs> while these people are supposed to be traveling ever southwards, moving from town to town, while he's trying to say, no, 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 let's stop in this town and make you a governor of this town. <laughs> How do I? <laughs> you just got some like fairly standard campaign player dissonance going on, right? Like that person doesn't want to be playing the game that everybody else is playing. You know, like they, they, there's a tendency with GMs and players to just play with the people they play with because they think that's the only group of players they could ever play with, and they have to just suffer through it. Ask that person, like, could you just play this game for now? Would that kill you? And if they're like, yeah, you can be like, that's okay. You don't have to play with us. It's like you could go play with some other people, and then when you feel the urge to play this game, whatever. Or you can switch it, and you'll play the Frank Underwood game next. But for now, it's, it's dungeon killing. Thank you. I've been um, GMing the game for a while now in Dungeons and Dragons, and I've run into the problem of how to make gold valuable. Oh yeah. Like when <laughs> it's health potions are like five gold. Are you are you playing fifth? Yeah. There's literally no reason to yeah. have gold in that game. Yeah, yeah. I had to make up entire things for my players to buy because there's nothing. Alright, glad it's not a yeah. just a that's problem. a system problem for sure. Okay. <laughs> okay, I deeply apologize to you four who are standing there, but I am being told by the enforcers over there that we are run out of time. Uh, what we will do is the, the panelists that have time to stay afterwards, we will meet you out there and answer your questions. Everybody else here, if you want to hear the answers to those questions, you can come and meet with us. Um, and we'll do our Thanks for having everybody. Yeah, thanks for coming, guys. Good morning, folks.